You're listening to Just Ask the Question, Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and with me today, happy to have uh, Heather Hendershot. She's a professor of film and media at uh, MIT, but is also currently a visiting professor at Northwestern. Uh, Heather, thanks for joining us. We'd like to talk to you. We're going to talk to everyone about your current book. Um, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about it before we go into break. Sure. Uh, the book is called When the News Broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarizing of America. And it's about this crazy, chaotic political event in Chicago in 68. It's one of the touchstones of American political history, American media history. And I think it's a book that helps us, gives us some context to understand the contemporary crisis in American political media. Thanks, Heather. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll jump right in. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karen with me, Heather Hendershot. Heather, I right before the break, you were describing your book. And I guess what I want to talk a little bit about is um, you. there's a couple of things you say in uh, the book that I'm uh, interested in, in tackling. And that is, you said a little bit about objectivity in the media and that after 68, and particularly the events in Chicago, that objectivity in media was not seen as a thing anymore that we were kind of skewed to the left i guess is uh you, you want to describe that a little bit for me sure um one of my arguments in the book is that before this event in 1968 um and all the aftermath all the fallout from the event before then the idea that the mainstream media was somehow plagued by liberal bias um was that was an idea held by segregationists uh, in the Deep South and elsewhere in America. It was a regional kind of uh, point of view in some ways. Um, and it was also an extremist or fringe point of view um, or people who, you know, take someone like William F. Buckley Jr., who is considered mm -hmm. the sort of legitimate voice of the far right. Okay. So, uh, you know, not a not a kook extremist, but well, uh, if you've ever met him, maybe you think differently, but go ahead. <laughs> Interesting guy, right? But I don't, you know, he was like, I'm a, I'm a right winger. Yes. I'm from the far right. right. I believe that there's a, a bias in the media towards liberalism. Um, but most people, whether they identified as Democrats or Republicans, uh, saw mainstream media, whether it's New York times or CBS news with Walter Cronkite, they understood it as fairly objective and balanced and it, or at least striving for that. And if it was skewed one way or another, sometimes it was because there were human beings making the news and sometimes they made mistakes, but everyone understood their professional objective was to be as neutral and balanced as possible. Can, I, can I interrupt you there and, and ask you, why, why do you believe that? What, what specifically brings you to believe that? Well, there's a lot of factors. Um, as you know, the Fairness Doctrine was put in place after World War II, and that applied to uh, broadcasting, right, and said that broadcasters have an obligation to cover controversial issues of public importance, and when they do so, they have to cover both sides, right? Right. Um, and that became, became the sort of default setting for radio and television news. Um, meanwhile, newspapers- No one was ever prosecuted for that, though. No one ever violated the- the, the, um, I mean, it was more of a there, guideline, right? I was, mean, there was a famous case, the red line case um, against a broadcast, a fundamentalist Christian broadcaster, very hardcore anti-communist named Carl McIntyre, a really wild guy, right? The hardcore anti-communist, very conspiratorial. One of those guys who's against communists and sees a uh, uh, fluoridation of water as a communist conspiracy, that kind of thing. And, and he did eventually lose his license because of the fairness doctrine. Um, but it was always generally speaking more of a kind of threat or more, more friendly way to put it, a framework, right. For right. Broadcasting. And it was inspired, uh, in many ways by father Charles Coughlin during world war two, 
who um, was a radio uh, radio priest and started out as a kind of FDR, somewhat liberal guy, and then swung the other way during the war and became a very anti-Semitic voice on the airwaves and uh, very against American getting involved, Americans getting involved in World War II and uh, friendly to Mussolini right ultimately um, at least rhetorically friendly i don't know if we knew him personally but but it it frightened people that the the, the airwaves could be used to to such damaging ends you know and of course at the same time you've got all this world war ii propaganda that was you know on the side of sort of the government and so people understood the airwaves as influential and understood what propaganda was and after the war realized we you know we we need some kind of policy framework to help keep this kind of extremism from, you know, surfacing and becoming dominant. And this is before, you know, something like Fox News was a glimmer in anyone's eyes. I mean, no one could imagine that we would have super right wing or even super left wing or liberal, you know. You mean back in the late, late 40s? In the late 40s, yeah. yeah, By the 60s, there was obviously, I mean, you had Richard Nixon and Roger Ailes and Exactly. And he yeah. had tried very hard in this. And I think that, correct me, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. But as I go through the history of it, and I covered some of this as well as in a book that I wrote, is that um, after the rise of, uh, after Nixon failed, you know, remember in, in California, you won't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Back in 1960. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, that it, we did have Nixon to kick around some more. And yeah. by 68, he was, he, he had conspired and was in, in very much against most of the media but yeah. so i i find the roots there after that well end. yeah absolutely i mean he 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 was very paranoid he thought the you know the media was was always against him no matter what if, unless the coverage was 100 percent favorable pro nixon he understood it as kind of anti-nixon he didn't understand that there was a sort of and- neutrality and he you know following the chicago convention he really weaponized this idea of liberal media bias. And he used Agnew, his vice president, as his sort of ventriloquist dummy in some ways to spread this idea about liberal bias. Nattering nabobs of negativism, as I Exactly, exactly, right. That sprung out of, but did that not actually spring? And and as far as mainstream, I don't know. I I mean, 64, you had the wonderful uh, case of Barry Goldwater. And in his presidential campaign, he pushed the idea of uh, liberal bias in the media. Absolutely. And, you know, you don't want to. And that led up to 68. All of the, I mean, yeah. Nixon and him, that yeah. those are all the seeds that that yeah. that were, were sown in the ground prior to 68. Yeah. 64 is a, is a really important precursor, right? Where Goldwater is saying the, the media is biased. Um, but Goldwater is also widely understood as an extremist that's seen as a kind of weird point of view and also but he was also the he was also the nominee of the republican party so he was mainstream he well but he got absolutely slammed in the election amazing is that they saw this as a rejection of extremism americans were like okay we're safe now we got we, we didn't elect barry goldwater we didn't get this extremist in the white house we re-elected lbj or elected lbj and it's okay and then Nixon is back and he's, you know, very hard right, you know, four years later. And some people say like that Barry Goldwater lost in 1964 and won in 1980. And what they wow. mean is, and then, you know, Reagan won in 80 and it was seen as a and kind of- And the godfather science. of everything that has occurred since. I mean, exactly. everything that you exactly. see in Trump and MAGA and all of it is, is, I say you can trace back to Barry Goldwater, but definitely, you can definitely trace it back to- to Ronald Reagan and that goes to Nixon and you've got Roger Ailes and all of it is, I I get all of that. Do you think that there was ever a golden age for journalism that, uh, or, or for broadcast television prior to 68? Yeah, I think there was a golden age and, you know, from the post-war years, um, it really kind of accelerating once the news went from 15 minutes to half an hour and they could actually cover a little bit more, you know, uh, in the sixties and into the seventies. So, and there's also, I mean, there's a golden age for news in the fifties around coverage of the civil rights movement and that into the sixties and the news 
network, you know, CBS, ABC, and NBC kind of mythologized themselves a little bit. You don't want to get too nostalgic about how they were so great during this golden age because they definitely made mistakes. And, you know, the dominant perspective was a sort of, sort of white middle class male perspective, you know, it's very centrist middle of the road, right? But they did a good job covering the civil rights movement. And they understood that they had to have cameras rolling in Birmingham, Alabama to expose what was going on down there, that the words were important, but so were the so were the images. So yeah, there was a golden age there. I I'll push back. I'll 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 look at it differently. As a reporter, I've never seen a golden age in reporting. In fact, I, I think it's all been kind of crap <laughs> from the time I, I mean, and it's certainly gone downhill since the, the consolidation in the media yeah. since the eighties, which was brought yeah. to us by Ronald Reagan, but the golden yeah. age, I don't. And, and when people say, well, you know, there was a time when we gave news without opinion. I don't agree with that either. I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'd love to hear what you think, but you know, we talk about, when you talk about Walter Cronkite giving us an opinion about Lester Maddox, Walter Cronkite and January of 68 also gave his opinion about the Vietnam War in a very mm -hmm. famous documentary. And mm -hmm. at the end said, I see no peace without negotiation. And that's when LBJ decided not to run for reelection. He says, I've lost Cronkite. I've lost America. That was his opinion. And it was labeled as such. But I think the difference was, I don't know if there was a golden age, but I do know that there was a time when there was more experience in journalism. People trusted Walter Cronkite with an opinion because he had the gravitas of having been in World War II. Mm -hmm. He had covered the civil rights movement. And many of the people that were anchors and reporters on television at that time had come from newspaper or from, from radio. And, exactly. And the radio was, influence. Yeah. Radio yeah. was so strong at CBS in terms of their hires and the, the, the so-called Murrow boys, Edward R. Murrow's yes. team, you know, broadcasting. Uh, on radio out of World War II. And a lot of those guys get hired up by CBS. So, I mean, I, th I think you're right. The golden age is a, it's not the best way to put it. There's always been flaws. There's always been, you know, oh, we've problems. stopped. So, we've always, <laughs> I mean. But you no, know, the, the higher ideal was we want to be as, as neutral as we can be, but sometimes we're going to make mistakes. And I'm so glad you mentioned, you know, Cronkite and Vietnam. It's a really important touchstone moment in American media history. And like, just to round that story out a little bit, Cronkite went to Vietnam in 65, really quite sort of taken in by the stage news conferences for him and the, the rhetoric of the military. And was he was what he described as a, or his biographer described as a cautious hawk. You know, he, he was basically personally politically liberal, right? But he sort of towed the, line, the Cold War line of like, we're doing the right thing in Vietnam. Not early 68, he goes back, right, on the tail end of the Tet Offensive. And as you said, he reports afterwards, we are mired in a stalemate in Vietnam. And it's true that part of the sort of mythology of that moment is that LBJ said, you know, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost America. Um, at least we, that could be apocryphal. But the basic idea was there. But the thing is, opinion had turned strongly against Vietnam, public opinion, and, and America had turned against the war before Cronkite gave his report. And so there's a way in which the Cronkite report is just kind of the the icing on the cake. It, it's important. It's not the tail wagging the dog. It's, you know, it's the... <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah, it's important, but it's not like after he said that, people were like, oh my God, we're started, mired in a stalemate. Like that was the going opinion. By January of 68, much, I mean, you know, we were still, 67 was behind us, the summer of yeah. love was ahead of us, but this mm -hmm. was a turning point and it, you, and it was, you could see it in our music, you could see it in pop culture. You know, I... Uh, lucky enough, years later, uh, myself uh, in New York after a, an appearance, I, I spent some time with Walter Cronkite, a couple mm -hmm. of hours speaking to him. And mm -hmm. I asked him specifically about this particular time, you know, the 65 visit versus 68 visit. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. What How you describe it is similar to how he described it to me. He said, Brian, we went, I went in 65 thinking that, um, that I, you have to give the government a benefit of the doubt because of what had occurred with, uh, he was Kennedy in 63. And then yeah. uh, LBJ coming uh, ahead with basically the implementation of some of the policies that 
that Kennedy, and we gave Kennedy the benefit of the doubt because he had been in World War II. He did yeah. have combat experience. So that was a lingering effect from, from Kennedy, as, as it was explained to me. And mm -hmm. he said, but when he went back in 68, um, he said, I knew something was amiss when I got there because it was yeah. all staged. And that was, I think, but see, again, that's an opinion, right? And, but and he, he said he didn't frame it as editorial opinion the way like his, like Eric Severide was the, you know, the commentary guy in mm -hmm. CBS. He said, it is the evaluation of this reporter right. that this is the best way to understand this. And importantly, he didn't do it on the nightly news. He did it on a CBS special report because at he wanted- At the end of the report, they put the entire that, report yeah. and that was at the end. He carefully spelled it out and it was important to him that this was separated from the CBS evening news because if it was perceived as his you know, editorial opinion, it shouldn't be on the regular news, it should be on a special report. And that was very meaningful to him. And what is shocking to me or, or fascinating to me is that he, I've read tons of letters to him in the archive. People didn't turn against him after that report from oh. Vietnam 68. He did not get, he got some negative mail, he got some positive mail, but like the letters didn't change dramatically. He starts getting- He was trusted. He's trusted. He starts getting attack mail though, right after the convention in 68. <laughs> I mean, like well. telegrams coming in all night, phone calls. <laughs> Really, the letters ran 11 to 1 against CBS. But was government. that because of him or was it because of someone else that was there, Dan Rather? Um, because okay. I, I, having talked to both men and yeah. having known them, yeah. and, um, you know, there was someone who once told me that um, Dan Rather was a guy who didn't feel comfortable inside his own skin. And he grew up in television. Remember, he was mm -hmm. in Houston. He was yeah. uh, covered Hurricane Carla. Everyone yeah. in Texas after he left tried to do the same thing he did to make it to the network, lashing himself to a telephone pole or, you know, walking in the middle of the hurricane and pretending like it was, you know, and we've seen countless years of hurricane coverage of reporters trying to repeat that, including I remember a very famous CNN segment where they were pretending like they were, it was really bad and people are walking behind them as if there's nothing going on. I mean, this has been going on in television I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but here's my bias in all of it, and please correct me. But you gave Cronkite the benefit of the doubt because of his vast amount of experience. He didn't catch hell, as you pointed out, after he what he said in in um, in his uh, in the special report. But after the 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 convention. And a lot of the theatrics of that convention included Dan Rather. Remember him on the on the you know wrestling people on the. Floor? I think that was this. I, I I always look at that as the seminal moment for change. So please have at it. Tell me yeah. tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not that you're wrong. It, Dan Rather is an important part of the story, right? Because he's famously punched. Um, mm -hmm. on the floor of the convention. And one thing I do in my book is give some context for that, that it's in a kind of scrum around bunch of delegates from Georgia who want to walk out with a Georgia state standard because Julian Bond, who's African-American, has been seated yep. with alternate delegation. So it's like that moment of rather being punched is around a challenge to white supremacy in Georgia. And I like to reframe it that way. That was really important. Um, and Cronkite's up in the booth. They cut to him and he says, well, it looks, looks like we got a bunch of thugs down there, Dan, if I may. And you watch that clip now, it seems very tame compared to, you know, watching, I don't know, Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson and these guys screaming and stuff, right? It's very measured and controlled. But when he comes back on, you know, after the commercial, he's like, I lost my temper a little bit there. And, you know, but we're worried about free speech here in Chicago. He framed it as a free speech issue that the media had been enduring all kinds of censorship um, at Mayor Daley's hands in many different ways, you know, technological issues, all these, you know, ways he tried to stymie their coverage. And so, you know, for Cronkite in some ways, that was the last straw, right? But the the hate mail, and they definitely got some letters and telegrams saying Dan rather deserved it, you know, yeah. stuff, right? But the hate mail was around the coverage of protesters in the street, um, you know, during the so-called Battle of Michigan Avenue, right? When the protesters are beaten in front of the Chicago Hilton for, by the police for like 17 minutes, 
just straight on being beaten. And that's part of Cronkite's gripe about censorship is that they deliberate, Mayor Daley doesn't resolve a phone worker strike that would have enabled live coverage in the streets. Yeah. So, you know, f- enables that censorship, right? Um, but the the hate mail, and this is sort of prodded really by Mayor Daley in the way he attacked the networks and also by Richard Nixon. Daley and Nixon, I mean, Daley is helping Nixon get elected. We yes. doesn't mean to. Exactly what he does, right? Yeah. Um, but the hate mail is saying, look, you show these protesters being beaten by police and you thought it was a sign of police brutality, which it patently was police brutality, right? Without a doubt. And without a doubt. But people doubted what they saw. They were like, this can't be right. So what Cronkite did and Huntley and Brinkley over at NBC obviously was biased. And the problem was people wrote in letters and phone calls and telegrams, right? The problem they said was you didn't show the context of why protesters were beaten. They were beaten because they provoked the police. They shouted obscenities at them. They threw rocks at them and stuff. They had bags of feces and urine that they threw at the police. And that's why they were beaten. And so the, I mean, it's a, it's pretty flawed logic. Like they were mean to police. So they deserve to be brutally beaten is, is not <laughs> a, to my mind, a, a strong argument, but that's the argument they were making. Against Why Cronkite. would you dare bring logic into this, Heather? Come on. I know. I know. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> so illogical. What are these people thinking? Yeah. So I find 68 is a, I don't know if I agree that it's entirely the 68 convention, but you did have the Tet Offensive. You had the uh, daily cops beating people in Chicago. You had those assassinations. And you had the ascendance of Richard Nixon at the time mm-hmm. when we lost, you know, uh, LBJ for the USA and um, were, were left with Hubert Humphrey, who was yeah, pleased, and- as, pleased as punished to be with us. But I don't know that he did a very good job at campaigning. And the media used the convention against him or the media, the Nixon's media makers, yes. you know, like Roger Ailes, just weaponized yes. images from that convention in Nixon campaign ads. And Nixon opened his campaign in Chicago with a ticker tape parade. Stick the knife to. <laughs> oh, that was a dagger. Oh, that was a dagger. A dagger. Yeah. Just a dagger, you know, in Hubert Humphrey's heart. It's really rough. So you're, but you're absolutely right. The wider context is that 1968 was just an unbelievably harrowing, difficult year in America. And- I, I think far diff- far more difficult. We look at, I think, I find it more contentious even than current events uh, in some ways. Because, in a, and I, we're quickly approaching it now with mm-hmm. uh, the number of wars. But the Tet Offensive, I remember people being brought home in body bags. I remember our next door neighbor and when he died and the, the family went completely bonkers. I mean, he was six weeks. He had just left, had been in for six weeks. The Tet Offensive. He's dead. So, yeah. the the all that violence, and there were riots, and there were no one rioted on the Capitol, but there were riots everywhere mm-hmm. else. There was uh, the civil rights unrest. There was the assassinations, and then the people coming home in body bags. And I still think that we're living under the uh, results of what occurred in '68. Yeah, I I'd agree with that. It was a partic- it was just the impact of that year really uh does live on for sure. Yeah. We're going to take a short break when we come back I want to talk a little bit more about journalism where you think we can do better and what we need to do to do it and your thoughts on current coverage of uh world events. So stick around, we'll be right back. Mm-hmm. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Question's newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth with Brian's in depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at Substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I'm your host, Brian Karam. With me again, Heather Hendershot. And Heather is uh, the author of When the News Broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarizing of America. (laughs) 
I, that was a little I, LBJ Texas noise you made there. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh, there's LBJ stories that I won't get into. Anyway, so <laughs> um, I, I guess the I, I want to talk about your experience in in the media. You you've not been a, a reporter in the field, right? But you've covered you've or have you? I mean, give me your background no, as far as you're, media. You're correct. I'm not a I'm not a journalist. I'm a historian of journalism and of American political media. And you have my um, condolences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like my curses. Of, my work is very timely. <laughs> so I've written a couple of, I wrote a book on Cold War right wing broadcasting. I wrote a book on William F. Buckley Jr.'s TV show, Firing Line. Yeah. And it's such an amazing show. You know, like it's an important precursor to this new book because, you know, it came out right on the cusp of the election of Trump. And it was the sort of last moment of like, could left and right actually talk about in some kind of civil manner and it didn't look likely but it was a sort of the book was in some ways nostalgic for that moment right because right. for whatever you felt about buckley he was friends with liberals and he had them on the show and they had really good discussions and stuff you know and then uh you know the 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 american media scene was already looking bad and after trump's election things just spiraled right and that was the kind of setup for me thinking about this new book cronkite's original sign-off right was something like um uh, you know, and that's the news for tonight. To learn more, read your local newspaper. Yes, thank you. You know, he thought that was like the best way to end the news. And uh, the management was like, yeah, it's not very catchy. And he ends up with, and that's the way it is, which I think he thought yeah. was a little bit pokey because he's like, just the way I presented it. It's not the way it is, you know? <laughs> um, right? And he understood like exactly what you're saying about the importance of local news coverage and national news coverage, right? And um yeah, that's that is a huge crisis now, and it has been for some time. You're right to, you know, not just point to the present moment to go back to the '80s and look at the the crisis in, you know, profit-driven journalism. And it began with Ronald Reagan. He got rid of the fairness doctrine. He allowed ownership, limited ownership, to be unlimited, unfettered, and he said, "Growing, allowing this will help build." Uh, you know, uh, the First Amendment strengthen it, but it hasn't. It's weakened it because. It was Ben Bagdickian who told me, and I he's quoted in saying it, so I'm not letting out any secrets, that the true key to diversity is diversity of ownership. But yeah. we have limited number of ownership today. And anybody, my whole problem with the idea that we are liberally biased in the media is that it pays no attention to the real fact that we're only biased towards money. There are like six companies that own 90% of what you see, read, or hear. And I guarantee you that those who sit those who sit on the boards of those companies are not liberal. But what they are is greedy. So if there's a liberal audience, they'll pitch to it. If there's a conservative yeah. audience, they'll go to that where the money is. And so you're you're speaking earlier about the fairness doctrine. The elimination of that, I think, has increased the problems that we have today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's part and parcel of all the broadcast, all the deregulation that that Reagan did, you know. And so, yeah, I got rid of the fairness doctrine. But as you point out, like ownership rules, you know, just like having any kind of limit on how many, you know, newspapers and radio stations and TV stations, you know, one financial entity could hold in one community. And so that, you know, that was seen as important for maintaining diversity of opinion um, and all independence. Kinds of and independent, yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, what do you think about? I was just reading Martha Minow's, Minow's book, Saving the News. She's the Harvard um, law professor, you know. And one uh, solution she points to is more newspapers being 501c3s. You know, that if that being not for profit is not the only path forward for newspapers, but we one path forward. And of course, these, you know, corporate mega lists, whatever they are, these Godzillas that run these corporations are not keen on, you know, making less I, money. But do you think that's a viable way forward for some newspapers to continue, I, Brian? For some. I, yeah. I, I do believe that it's a viable one part of the solution. But let's be honest. All right. Yeah. The problem in journalism is the fact for, let, let, it, it, I'm going to get in the weeds a little bit for a second, but if you're running a community newspaper, uh, a lot of your budget was based on community service ads, you know, public notice ads. 
a lot of uh, jurisdictions and anti-slap legislation has killed, uh, you know, <laughs> just frivolous lawsuits where people can afford it going after small newspapers who can't. And without anti-slap legislation to prevent that, you're screwed. In addition, those public notice ads, you know, like, uh, for example, city council is going to meet on Thursday. It's got to be in the yeah. paper on Tuesday. Yeah. You know, that that's a significant portion of a budget for smaller newspapers. When and you don't change, forget classified personal ads. Uh, yeah, but, but we can do those online. Yeah, but it's the government now saying they can do it on their websites. Mm -hmm. And my argument has been in court when I've testified is I'll pick up a copy of a newspaper from 1850. And I go, look, this is finite. It is today as it was then. It can't be hacked. It can't be changed online. It can't be. This is uh, and in a court of law. This has rule because it is finite. The mm -hmm. internet is infinite. And yeah. it's so you can hack it, change it, and there's no guarantee of what you wrote today is what you wrote yesterday. So there's still a legitimate and legitimate reason for A, newspapers, and B, for advertising public notice ads in newspapers. A disinterested third party is telling others what's going on in the government. We're not just trusting the government. There is a step in between. You mm -hmm. take away that money and... Small newspapers will fold. The slap legislation causes, without it, causes people to, causes newspapers to fold. And then there are no actual, in, in addition to 501c3s, I think you need to have actual uh, tax incentives and, and loan incentives for small newspapers and for small independent media. Everyone gripes about there's no media, but there's absolutely nothing done to guarantee that it is. And finally, I think you have to divorce, look, I'm a wonderful capitalist. I wrote a book. You wrote a book. You want as many people to buy the book as possible. I do too. I sure. <laughs> I'll sell you multiple copies, but that's yeah. not what drives journalism. And if you put, if you don't give uh, legislation and legislative relief and economic relief to newspapers, they become completely subservient to the money, and that ruins journalism. There's nothing about current journalism and look i'm in the white house and i can tell you for a fact there are people who have there are reporters that would be better off laying bricks than being reporters why is that because with the consolidation of media the experience that you and i talked about at the beginning and this is one of my big bugaboos i used to you used to have to have five or ten years of experience to go anywhere in this business today large corporations are hiring kids straight out of college putting them in the White House instead of having them be experienced before going there, and they get swept up. They don't ask good questions. They don't know the issues, and they're enamored by, you know, being part of the, and they, it's it's all, in that case, they just want to be part of the in-crowd baby, so it's access journalism. And they really have no, you know, Walter Cronkite and those people, that generation had that experience. But you look at that now, and today there's maybe a third of that much experience on the, on, so I, 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 they, yeah. so I think that long answer to your question, but yeah, I believe that 501c3s are a viable option, but there has to be others. It cannot there has to be more. Yeah. So you're pointing to a crisis in professional norms and training and in a way, the sociology of the news business and how choices are made and how group decisions are made and, you know, top-down management and, and, and so on. Right. But then you're also pointing to these financial issues like tax breaks and stuff like that that could yeah. really, I mean, we have, as you know, the precedent of reduced postal rates. Yes, exactly. Thank you. I, I wrote about that in the book. Yeah. yeah. And it's really important. You want to maintain a robust free press and you, the government should support that through tax incentives. And in the past, that was through, you know, mailing breaks on mailing costs, you know, putting this object in the mail, right? So that object, that newspaper, magazine, whatever, is, you know, not what it once was, right? Most people aren't reading hard copies. So what is the digital equivalent of that? You know, what is, how well, do you, how, how do tax breaks support journalism out, you know, in it outside of an old school, you know, U.S. postal system economy? Well, I think, First of all, you uh, okay? <laughs> that's that's a complex issue, and it's a good question. Break up the media monopolies. We talk about all the time uh, about mm -hmm. others, you know, trust busting. And he, President Biden says, you know, he wants to bust up monopolies. We'll extend that to my 
business, please, because we need that. Secondly, um, other than I, I think there is a desire to read that can be um, enhanced that. But here's the other thing. We have not in this business yet caught on to this very simple concept. We are information providers across a variety of platforms, printed, written, you know, rent, written, visual, mm -hmm. and audio. Mm -hmm. You are not just a newspaper. You are also, a, you also stream. You also have podcasts. You also have video. You, your website is a portal through which you sell all of the stuff you bring a community together there's no repository like the newspaper used to be and still can be but it's going to be online it's going to be an app it's going to be on your phone mm -hmm. but those of us in our business and look we've also been I, i'll be honest with you i'm angry with every president since reagan every single one of them has helped destroy the first amendment including the 1996 telecommunications act including the fact that uh, Barack Obama used the Espionage Act, what, seven mm -hmm. to eight times against information providers. Every single one of them has done something to destroy the First Amendment. And then you have basically members of Congress and presidents calling us fake media or saying the problem is us, and yet they're the ones that created the very problem they bitch about. Does that answer it? <laughs> I, yeah, in a nutshell, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Telecommunications Act in 1996, right? That's the Clinton initiative. Yes. Devastating in terms of relaxing ownership rules and stuff like that. And there, there's all this rhetoric, um, this will seem so dated to even say, about the information superhighway, right? We're going to get computers in every classroom and that will justify everything else we do that... Um, is, you know, bad news for media and, and citizenship, basically, right? So they kind uh that was that was devastating. So you're you're absolutely right to be concerned about all the presidents, not just Reagan and Trump. But you no, know. I, I I find them all distasteful distasteful, but that's just me. But I, I I the question I wanted to ask you because I spent my life inside this business. Mm -hmm. Outside of the business, how did what brought you to being interested in how it's done and why what what for you was the was the nexus of your thoughts that brought you to where you are well that's uh that's a complicated question um you know i well okay, every I once in a while i gotta try <laughs> well i began my career actually uh studying children's television and specifically children's television censorship it's a very complicated thing right because you have the network censoring themselves through their own standards and practices you've got the fcc you got activists pulling for the Children's Television Act of 1990. You know, right off the bat, I was interested in how people balance uh, wanting to improve media with supporting the First Amendment and what are the kinds of policies and regulations and changes you can make that will improve speech without infringing on anyone's First Amendment rights. And then people fight about what that all means. And so, you know, from there, I got interested in um, evangelical media because they were making a lot they were making a lot of youth culture. They were making a lot, if you've ever heard of Veggie Tales, it's like Christian animated vegetable cartoons. Yes, of course. Um, so I got interested in that. And uh, then I wrote this book on Cold War right-wing broadcasting. And that's where Carl McIntyre came up, what I was talking about earlier. And uh, basically it gets back to what we were saying earlier about Goldwater and you know, he was defeated and there was a sense that like, oh, we've defeated extremism and America is, there's a kind of liberal mainstream consensus in America. There's, a, you know, the vital center as one historian put it, right? Um, and yet at that moment, right-wing broadcasting just takes off. And you know where it takes off? It's not nationally. It's not like CBS is putting out right-wing broadcasting. It's local. So yes. we tend to, especially now with these news deserts and our desire to have better local news, we tend to almost fetishize the local as like, this is the next, this will fix everything. And we have to recall that there's all kinds of negative, <laughs> damaging stuff happening at local levels in communications and in, in whether it's newspapers or radio or whatever. So this right-wing broadcasting mo movement in the 60s um, which we think of as the liberal decade and, you know, yeah. mythologically, like it's a hardcore anti-civil rights agenda coming out of Texas in particular with people like Dan Smoot, this billionaire H.L. Hunt, 
who just like funded the hell out of right wing radio all over America. And I mean, H.L. Hunt was he was he was. He oh, was Hunt was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. He I, was, I, yeah. And he just sunk his oil money into right wing radio and some television too. television was more expensive and radio was sort of easier to spread around and market from station to station it was all a local initiative. And the fairness doctor was the only thing that kind of reined it in a little bit. Right. So what so, do you, what yeah. do you see is a, is a, is a cure. Do you think it's a 501c3s or do you see other cures to the media problem? I mean, I think that you're right that um, ownership is a huge issue and the, like, how do you infuse public service as a driving goal of journalism as opposed to, well, we can profit off of public service? But no, like public service is our main in initiative, not- That's how you, pro it's a smaller profit margin. But, you know, one of the papers I worked at, the Courier-Journal and Louisville Times, mm -hmm. over the uh, when it was owned by the Binghams, a family- I remember I walked in and over the elevators when you walked in was this saying by uh, Worth Bingham. And is I have always thought of these newspapers as a public trust and mm -hmm. have endeavored to run them that way. That mm -hmm. I think is key is having people who have there is a sustainable uh, profit margin through doing the work that you're supposed to do. It's not as large mm -hmm. in the beginning. But over time, as they proved, it was over. You hated the courier if you were a, a right winger because but you also trust them. And there wasn't yeah. a there wasn't one single politician in the state of Kentucky and several and other because it was a regional paper as well that would not use an endorsement by that newspaper in their advertising when they ran for office. Mm -hmm. Who does that today? Who even bothers the 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 uh, effort that went into endorsing candidates having two or three people do investigative work on the candidates, having the candidates come and appear and vet themselves in front of a, an editorial board, discussion among the editorial board before they, what newspaper today does that for any local election or is capable of doing it? Yeah, not for local elections. So every four years with a national election. But yeah. What betting goes on there either? I mean, I, well, look, I just mean that like the times is going to probably endorse a candidate every four years and yeah. they're going to, you know, they're going to try to meet with people and discuss, you know, um, but at the local level, um, yeah. Where's that happening? It's, it's kind of kaput. So my question to you then is, I uh, see, I don't think that we've had an honest, well, I don't think we've ever had an honest politician, but I don't think that politicians are honest when they say they support the First Amendment. I don't believe it with Biden. I don't, mm -hmm. I did certainly, you know, at least Trump was fake media. You know, he, he tried to take my press pass, but he was, he was an honest, dishonest guy. I, I didn't like him and still don't, but I mean, he, he didn't care for us, but I don't think any politician does. How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I think maybe I feel less negative about that than you Tell do. Tell me why. <laughs> Not the same thing as positive, but because I do, I because I actually, for all the flaws of say the Democratic Party uh, right now, um, I still think they're the pro democracy party, yes. and the Republicans are the anti democracy party. And I think that the Democrats understand that part of being pro democracy is being pro First Amendment, and they're not always going to execute that perfectly. And Biden's not going to do everything you know right that I would wish him to do, and so on. Right? Amity but, should do everything I want. <laughs> but I'm, 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 I don't know if I'm more optimistic, but like I said, sort of less negative about like all oh, the politicians are against the person. Man. I don't think that's true. I think there's what's what history studying media history helps you understand that politicians have always had a contentious relationship with media, right? Because they would prefer to get positive coverage. I well, mean, if you're right, I'm just, it's just that there was like a normal level of disagreement versus a kind of abnormal amplification of the media is against me, which I think Nixon really was the pivot point for kicking that off. So you look at LBJ and, you know, you listen to his phone calls because we think of Nixon as the big recorder in the in the Oval Office, but LBJ recorded all his phone calls. And, you know, you can hear his antagonism towards the press. And, you know, he was friends with uh, David Brinkley, but then he was like, ah, the guy's a smart ass. You know, he kind of turned on him, right? He didn't like the negative coverage. He hated their coverage of Vietnam, right? Yeah. But he didn't go on TV and say the press is the enemy of the people. And he didn't make people feel like to cover in a, a rally, they had to have a security detail. 
So we're at this level of journalists traveling with security at, at a Trump rally so that they're not beaten or worse. You know, it's really it's shocking. And so it's it was considered um, normal for politicians to uh, not like press coverage um, and to gripe about it and mostly gripe privately. And sometimes, you know, LBJ would call the networks and complain, but not to take it public and um, uh, just stage these full on attacks on the media. And that's what the GOP is doing. So full throttle right now, yeah. you well, know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll push this way. If you, okay. you're a student of, of, of history of journalism, uh, mm -hmm. the the history of journalism, if you go back far enough, newspapers were founded by the parties. Oh, if absolutely. There. So yeah, the, yeah. they and, were always in bed with them until there was a, until we became enslaved, not to the politicians, but to our advertisers. There was the subtle shift. So we were removed by one, which gave us a breathing room. But when I say all politicians, I'll say it this way. All politicians, even if they say they support the First Amendment, do not like bad press. Exactly. The best, the best you can get or hope for out of a politician is a tolerance of the fact that they're going to get bad press and mm -hmm. still support what we do. I find mm -hmm. those people few and far between. The idea of the press being neutral, I don't believe in an objective press. I don't think objectivity is possible. I think subjectivity is 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 the ground floor, but it's vetted factual information that we yeah. have. I'm not yeah. here to I'm not here to supply you the truth, Heather. Yeah. I'm yeah. how many? Which truth are you talking about? There's what fifteen thousand well, religions. Your truth like, is your truth, but the facts we have to agree on, and that's what yeah, we I, I absolutely agree. And I think just to add nuance to sometimes I feel romantic about, you know, the golden age of CBS news or whatever in the fifties and sixties. Right. And, but, you know, if you really read their internal memos, which I have, like, they actually say like, look, we can't be objective. Objective is the wrong word because everyone has subjectivity and a point of view. What we're striving, we, we don't like to use the word objective. We'd rather use the word neutrality because it has a different connotation. And the point is exactly what you just said. We're going to find facts. We're going to balance them. We're going to look at all points of view and present them as neutrally as we can. But we're never going to be 100% objective because we're human beings. And that you know, was part of the fairness doctrine. What you're just talking about is one of the reasons, founding reasons for the fairness doctrine, the neutrality. I often yeah. find that a little, yeah, and I love your thoughts on this because I find that a little... Um, Non-descriptive as well. Look, th there are certain, you know, give giving both sides to a story. Look, some stories there are no both sides to. The earth circles the sun. Exactly. The Holocaust yeah. occurred. We're yeah. it's not a flat earth. There are yeah. certain things I'm not going to put a moron on television with the or or quote one in the newspaper saying something that is absent, you know, facts. And it's because we have that blossoming all across the internet that people look and go, well, what are facts anymore? I can't even bet them. Yeah. And the problem is too much, not not so much too much information, but too much opinion. Um, uh, yes. Unlabeled. Not, not that I want to shut down blogs and, you know, people should say what they want to say. But when, when, when opinion is packaged as news, you've got a problem. And when you have too much... When they don't know the difference, that's the yeah. bigger problem. I mean, here's where, let's let's go back and look at the Fairness Doctrine. The reason that was viable and was not considered a violation of the First Amendment was because it was a technological reason. It was because of, of spectrum scarcity. So, which basically means you've got three networks and then when local communities, they either carry the networks or they, they, they're a really small town and they just have their local news or whatever. Um, but then they're showing gun smoke afterwards, which they didn't make themselves. They got it from CBS, right? Or NBC, right? Um, so once Reagan deregulates everything and you have cable, you don't have scarcity anymore. So yeah. you, it's easy for someone to argue against the fairness doctrine and say, well, that was based on the fact that there were only, there wasn't enough space on the broadcast spectrum for lots of voices and the public owned the airwaves. And so we had a right, we, it didn't violate the first amendment to help out the public with this resource that they owned you know, the air, whatever that means to own the air, right? So once you get rid of that technological limitation, your problem becomes not scarcity, but overabundance. 
too much material to sort through. And then you start using like machine learning to help sort things through and, you know, algorithms making decisions instead of actual humans. I mean, I'm, I'm just right now reading Marty Barron's new book on the Washington Post. Very interesting read. Learn a lot about Jeff Bezos, and and I'm sure you have strong opinions on that, as you should. Right? Oh, don't get me started, baby. <laughs> I don't want to get me started. I want to start something here. But, you know, uh, uh, and I think I would agree with a lot of what you have to say there, but like <laughs> one point in the book where they're talking about all the technological innovations that and the, the Washington Post has sort of been behind when Bezos bought it on their technology, and they had to catch up in many ways. But one of the innovations was like trying out multiple headlines and then... It would audit which whichever got the most click throughs would be the headline that stuck as being yeah. the headline, right? It's the opposite of what you were saying earlier about your newspaper from 1850 that you hold it up and yeah. it's the object and it is what it is, right? So uh, the, a an automated system is is picking the headline. Well, a headline that makes people click through is often a very misleading, exciting headline, and so you have headlines that will click that will link to very well reported strong right. work strong journalism but the headline makes it look like they're saying uh you know what's Biden's problem he's an idiot and then you click through and you're like that's not what the article is about but that was the salacious headline that got someone interested enough to click that's and not that's where so, technology is so important to think yeah about. that that's not so different it's basically look at having worked as an editor you always wanted to find a headline that would draw people in Right. The difference is that the clickbait is you divorce the headline from the from the thrust of the story. Yeah. So it becomes strictly about the headline. And no news editor at any newspaper would ever allow that. And no managing editor or executive mm -hmm. editor. Remember, that I've just mentioned three layers of editing, which mm -hmm. it allowed factual vetted information, which helped provide it. No one would allow that. So yeah. while I agree that there is a, a a proliferation instead of a scarcity of outlets, it, at the same time, there is a reduced, I think it's even scarcer now to find actual journalism. And for me, I'll define it this, I don't know if I can define journalism, I can tell you what an act of journalism is, but if you want to call yourself a reporter or a, a provider of factual information, it can't just be one person sitting there, you know, putting their opinion in a, a blog, you right. at the very least have to have one copy editor who looks at you and says, no. And, mm -hmm. and we don't with, with, uh, with the algorithms and, and with <laughs> machine intelligence, you've lost that as well. It's just click through. And the more eyes you have on copy, the more mm -hmm. eyes you have on your copy for television, for newspaper, for radio, for live streaming, for blogs, the more eyes, the better. Because it, it everyone needs, look, speaking as an editor and a writer, everyone needs an editor. Yeah, every, edit, editors are, are freaking heroes. I would go that far. But like, it, I think that the general public maybe thinks of editors as what you just said, like the people who like look for spelling errors and, you know, kind of tidy up the, you know, pros and like just copy editing, line editing or whatever. And then there are editors who help you conceptualize and refine a piece and think it through and maybe say, we got to send this to a fact checker and let's make sure we've got it right. And editors do so much work. And that's something that um, positive work. And that's something that, it, it, you know, corporate owners come in and swoop in and take over a, a newspaper. Out there. No copy editors, no news editors, no city editors. They're like, they, who needs it? Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they've shaved that. I mean, I can tell you for a fact, I would have young reporters that I mentor who would come to me and go, hey, uh, Brian, this is what I think. And I'm going, I, I don't care what you think. I barely care what I think. <laughs> what do you know? What do you have that's vetted and, and factual? And we need those people. So we're going to take a short break. We'll have a few final words when we come back. Stick around. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon for the price of a latte. You can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com 
slash JATQ podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we're back. It's just asked the question. I am your host, Brian Karen with me, Heather Hendershot and Heather talking about her new book. And, and, and Heather, I, I hope I haven't taken away from the, the, the subject matter of your book, which started out the conversation, but you go back to that one seminal moment in 68 and tell me exactly succinctly. We began the conversation with that. Why, why do you think it was 68 and it was a democratic convention? Sure. I just think that this is a pivot moment where people saw police brutality on television and the vast majority of the so-called silent majority, right? The white middle Americans that supported Nixon and voted him into office, looked at the screen and said, this, this has to be wrong. They had photographic evidence in front of them. And they're like, it can't be this level of police brutality. This it's too, it's too horrible. It can't be true. The newscasters must've gotten it wrong and told the story wrong. And, but they didn't say those images are made up. They're fake. And of course, you know, this was before deep fakes and so on. But it's a pivotal moment where people actually really question, like, this has to be a wrong story, right? And we, and it it's a kind of first step of, you know, it's like, how do we get from there to here, right? From saying people aren't doing their professional due diligence versus they're just making everything up, right? So I pointed this as a key moment when that sort of, that, that pivot happens, right? And Nixon... Yeah. And Mayor Daley of Chicago really accelerated that. You had a Democrat. Talk about bipartisanship. You had a Democrat and a Republican <laughs> both attacking the media really hard. Yeah. And ultimately, the winners were the Republicans in that. Yeah. I think it is it is Republicans in particular and Republican think tanks, conservative think tanks, who have driven home this narrative of the problem is not X, Y, or Z. The problem is the media. You know, like Watergate, like the problem's not Watergate. The problem is how the media is reporting Watergate. That is a, a pattern we've seen over and over again. It's not that Democrats don't do it. It's that Republicans have made it into a kind of art form. <laughs> uh, that uh, <laughs> A satanic art form. Uh, <laughs> do you do you have hope for the future? Are you hopeful? <sighs> well, that was uh, a sigh. <laughs> that was... <laughs> I know, I know. Look, uh, I... I my hope is that we maintain democracy. You know, my anxieties about authoritarianism and fascism and paramilitary groups and the level of violence and threats of violence that we're seeing in America right now. And so, you know, as a media story, my little piece of how I can contribute is to help us think about, well, what's the role of media in amplifying or diffusing? some of these issues and problems, both sidesism, right? Having uh, Richard Spencer on opposite, uh, you know, someone on the so-called other side that isn't a white supremacist, that's, those yeah. are some bad choices that need to stop. And if we can reduce those kinds of bad choices, it will improve the media ecology as it were. Um, I'm not sure that that's gonna- And how do you propose doing that? Um, well, I think that journalists are starting, uh, and again, maybe I'm more optimistic than you are, but they're starting to figure that out. And they've done a somewhat better job at saying, uh, being willing to say that someone is lying, not just that they may be saying something that is not 100% factually accurate, but like there, there has been, there have been some lessons learned from the four years that Trump was in office, but there are more lessons to learn for sure. I, to me, three things break up media monopolies, reinstitute the fairness doctrine, make it uh, um, applicable across the internet. I think it's possible. There are people who have, have looked at how to do it. There are legislators I know that are interested in it. And finally, in a national shield law to protect reporters so that when we do our job, we don't risk being prosecuted for that. Having well, gone would... for that, I find that to be key. I would disagree about the viability of the fairness doctrine, oh, but, I, Why? It, but I but on the same page with you about the issue of ownership being a huge problem and the shield law issue and so on. So I think yeah. that we agree about a lot of these things. I think the I think the fairness doc I, I think the idea of applying applying some kind of new fairness doctrine across the internet is is wobbly. Um, although I think that there are some arguments to be made about libel and defamation and who is responsible. And, you know, if, if say Facebook is liable, um, would that help stymie the spread of disinformation? That's possible. I think there are some discussions to be had 
about you know legal solutions, but I don't think the fairness doctrine or some I, new version of it is ideal. I think what you're mistaking there is that mm -hmm. uh, Facebook are providers. They are yeah. not um, information uh, gatherers. So I'm talking about a fairness doctrine applicable to media, actual media companies on the net, as well as uh, in radio and television, in order to set up a differentiation, a, a more a, a clar clarifying, more clarifying what is journalism and what is just merely aggregation. You mm -hmm. cannot... You cannot do anything about the aggregates. I don't think you can do. I mean, you can sue Facebook for libel, but mm -hmm. for those newspapers, television stations, and uh, media companies, entities that hire people to provide information, the institution of the fairness doctrine there across those would help stymie some of the things that we're seeing in um, Fox News, OAN. Um, mm -hmm. I think that there's no doubt that holding them accountable to a higher standard because they themselves claim to be of a higher standard, that making them accountable would be. So I'll push back and I, I get you about Facebook and Twitter or X or whatever the hell he's wanting to call it these days. Yeah. But if you are a legitimate news provider, then mm -hmm. you have to uh, you have to have a higher standard. Now, I know that there are ways to do that. I don't know, I, I, you know, but push back. Tell me I'm wrong. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. I just think that if if it's the, I, I, well, I think you're going to run into First Amendment issues with the fairness doctrine, with with your fairness doctrine idea. Um, but wow. I'm open to brainstorming about any way we can stymie the flow of disinformation and election. Well, let's denial. go do this. <laughs> I don't. I don't know how to how to fix it, but um, you know, like getting back to. Okay, labeling has been the way that people have dealt with all kinds of media that they had concerns about, and it's often backfired. Um, like the PMRC, right? The Parents Music Research, either the, yeah. the force thing, yeah. like let's label all the music we think is dangerous and keep kids from listening to dangerous Prince songs, you know, like, or the 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 um, radio. That just made them sell more. <laughs> I know, right? Ray's administration, we're like, we'll just label stuff clearly for parents. And so the labeling is not always a, a problem solver. Um, but if you found a good way to label certain kinds of information as news and other kinds as opinion, or um, yes, you point out, I, I think most people know what news aggregation is and don't realize that they're reading stuff that is just like compiled <laughs> by someone, but not reported by them. Um, so uh, raising awareness about the differences between, you know, actually reported news, sites that just aggregate all kinds of stuff, um, opinion, and really I, I think your opinion it, is necessary. Yes. Yeah. It's going to be tricky to say like, we need to label things as information or disinformation. I, I mean, I agree that there's do that. a clear difference, but it's that. not going to work out. But yeah. if you could say, well, there's opinion and there's there's reporting, um, those kinds of labels might be useful. Um, I haven't I haven't quite solved all the problems yet. Well, neither I, have I, but I've tried. God knows I've tried from living on the inside of the beast because it's just become oh, well. Look, we could continue this for a long time, but I, I, I won't put you through any more torture. Our last question I'll ask for you. I have to ask everybody this. Beatles or Stones? Oh, Beatles. Ah, favorite Beatles? Seriously? Yeah. Or Beatles, favorite Beatles song or favorite Beatle? Uh, you know, I, I think I, I'm, I'm kind of sold on Ringo now. <laughs> you know yeah. i saw him, i saw him perform like uh about a year ago and he was just amazing yeah he still is at 80 something years old i i don't know that you know he's the same age as the president so let's <laughs> yeah ringo is amazing he says he he keeps it up through all the antioxidant seeds he's he's on a high blueberry uh consumption regime and he says that's what keeps him fresh i don't know <laughs> um, but yeah i gotta go with the beatles i mean like okay yeah there's some great stone tunes but honestly you know who, who's your desert island band you know who, who's gonna be the rain it's the beatles right the range and the experimentation and just just doing their own thing yeah well. and everybody followed them everything that passed you know afterwards stood on their shoulders but and I could I could never pick a favorite beetle. I think the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. 
and I like each individual for a variety of reasons. And I can't pick a favorite Beatles song either. But I got to ask everybody because I just love to see how you. Oh play. God, there's no way I could. I mean, ask on different days of the week, it might be a different song. Yes. <laughs> What's your mood? Like some days are Eleanor Rigby days, and some days are not. Yeah, you know? that's true. Some days are paperback writer days. That's. <laughs> Absolutely. And then don't yeah. get me started on revolution. So let's. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> well, listen, Heather, I, I appreciate it. It's been a great, great fun. I, I'd like to have you back sometime and continue the discussion if you're up for it. It's great talking to you and I would love to come back. Thanks and for having just, me. And uh, just tell me where you, you, this is your uh, time to shine. Where would you like, what would you like to uh, promote? Uh, just the new book, right? When the news broke, Chicago 1968 and the Polarizing America. So yeah, the, the paperback is coming out in the spring, which is great, like um, April. And the audiobook just came out about a month ago. So if you like to listen to stuff on the treadmill, audiobook, there you go. There you go. Wherever, wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. <laughs> and the name of this is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Join us uh, each week and then on our weekend show for uh, Just Ask the Press when members of the press discuss everything that's happened and how we screwed up during the week. So anyway, thanks for joining us, Heather. We will catch you next time.